Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have Vinay Bagat, founder and CEO of TrustRadius, and Jeff Ernst, co-founder and CEO of Slap5. Happy Friday. Welcome to Category Creators podcast. My name is Gil Alush. I'm the CEO of Metadata. Uh, I have together with me Vinay and Jeff. Uh, Vinay, maybe you can start us off and introduce yourself and your company. Well, thank you for having me on, Gil. Uh, I'm Vinay Pagat, founder and CEO of Trust Radius. Um, we're a customer review platform for enterprise technology. And this is my second attempt at category creation. <laughs> I love that. And Jeff? Hi, everybody. Gilway, thanks for having me. And my name is Jeff Ernst. I'm co-founder and CEO of Slap5. And we are an end-to-end customer marketing platform, which is the new category we're trying to create. And this is also my second experience creating a category. So we, we have that in common, Vinay. Love it. I'm excited about it. We're just now finishing up interviews for, for our first customer marketing person. So uh, it's an interesting, interesting relative topic in my, in my mind. Thank you both for, uh, for joining. Uh, I'm, excited about, um, I'm excited about this because you're both, you're both in the MarTech space and the MarTech space has a lot of uh, blood, sweat and, and some success stories also. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'd love to hear your opinion, especially maybe you can just kick it off and start a bit with really your opinion about category creation. Um, Vinay, maybe you can, you can start us off. Um, what, when, you, when you're thinking about, okay, I'm gonna go start a new company and start a new category in marketing. I think, I guess customer review, that, you know, I don't know how, how you'll define it, but uh, in a space that is not completely new or, or how do you think about it? Well, um, I think there are two types of entrepreneurs. There are entrepreneurs who like to build a better mousetrap. So where there's an existing category and they believe they've got a superior technology that can run faster. And there are others like me who see problems that need to be solved. And I'm personally a lot more motivated by attacking hardcore problems that no one else I believe has solved before. In terms of why I attacked this particular problem, I saw a very clear example of something working in business to consumer and a big gap in terms of how things worked in B2B. And I felt someone needed to go take what has worked in B2C in terms of bringing transparency to purchasing and make that work in enterprise in B2B. So I think, um, you know, while I'm creating a category inside MarTech and inside B2B technology, in many ways, I'm trying to mirror what has worked already in, in, a, in a different domain. Thank you for that. And when you, when you went about to, to start a company and, and create that category, was it from day one that you started Trust Radius and you said, I'm going to be creating a new category? Yeah, very much so. So uh, maybe it'd be helpful to have a little bit of history behind you know, the light bulb moment for me as an entrepreneur. So um, 
I'm a two-time entrepreneur. I previously founded and started uh, a company called Convio, which was an online marketing platform for the nonprofit sector, vertical market-focused solution focused on fundraising and public advocacy. Um, we took the company public, we scaled to about 450 people, and we got acquired. And in the process of getting acquired, um, I had a lot more time on my hands to kind of think about what, was, what I was going to do next. And I really wanted to build a business that had um, very different characteristics that had almost like a consumer aspect to it because I felt it could scale in a, in a differential way. But um, just a few more few months before we were acquired, we had purchased um, a, a tech, some enterprise software to run our business for our HR function. And my team ended up buying a solution that was highly rated by analysts that where the references checked out, where the salesperson said all the right things, but um, it, at the end of the day, didn't meet our functional needs. We rolled it out to 450 people and then found that there was a key element that wasn't working for us. And when I asked the team, you know, how did you make this decision? You know, did you speak to people who have exactly the same use case for us? The answer is no. We checked all these other sources, but we didn't validate that. Around the same time, I was buying an appliance for my house, um, cappuccino machine. Walked into Williams Sonoma, uh, spoke to a salesperson, didn't trust the advice, asked a friend. He told me, go look at Jura, a Swiss brand. I Googled the product, found um, you know, typical reviews on Costco.com, and then found this niche site called Coffee Geek, uh, which had incredibly detailed reviews around what it's like to own one of these appliances. And I was just blown away how is it that this can exist for a $1,000 home appliance, but nothing like this exists for enterprise technology? So I think as entrepreneurs, when we create categories, oftentimes it's really just um, a light bulb moment when we see certain dots connecting. And for me, I was already awakened to looking for opportunity. And I just saw just an obvious gap between how consumer purchasing was done and how enterprise purchasing was done and felt someone needed to bridge that gap. Very cool, um, Jeff. When you when you hear that story, when you when you you know think about you know the nice thing solving problems, uh, not necessarily building a better mousetrap, what have you. Um, when you when you're thinking about Slap Five and you you're talking about the customer and marketing category, uh, do you get any pause or do you just like Vinay from day one? You're like I'm solving something new. I'm we're going to create a new a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I never set out to create a category either. That wasn't my goal uh, because similarly, what, what I love, what, what really gets me going is spotting or identifying an unmet need in the marketplace and then figuring out how to fit that need. And if that need turns out to be creating a new category, then I'm creating a new category. But that wasn't necessarily my goal from day one is to say, I want to go create a new category. What should it be? And as I said, this is my second go at this. So the first company I started back in 2008 was in the, it, what didn't exist at the time was social recruiting, social media recruiting. And at the time I was fully engulfed as a marketing practitioner, applying social media to customer acquisition and building communities around a company and realizing that was a game changer in how we do marketing. And then I saw that in the, I had a partner who I was talking to about starting a business who was, came from the recruiting space. And he's like, you know, 
the recruiting space is like 10 years behind marketing. And, but they really need to do this too, because talent acquisition is very similar to customer acquisition. You have to uh, communicate a brand, a compelling value proposition and create a talent pool or a you know, candidate pool. And so we, we actually created a company in that space and it didn't exist. So, you know, we, we had to define the category. And then after a few years, the, the company got acquired, it got rolled up into a human capital management company. And I didn't know what my next startup was going to be, but I knew I wanted to start in my next company. So I went, decided to go to Forrester, become an analyst, sit on the other side of the briefing table for a few years and poke holes in all the vendor strategies of the people that were coming to brief me. But I knew I would get a, my idea there for, for my next uh, venture. And so sure enough, I was an analyst for a couple of years, and I, but I always gravitated towards customer care and uh, mobilizing customers to drive strategic growth. So I was helping our clients do that. And then they tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Jeff, will you do that for Forrester? And so I became the head of marketing there, started practicing what I was preaching. And lo and behold, I created a customer engagement and customer marketing program that was phenomenally successful. It was a game changer in how the company did sales and marketing. I mean, for the first time ever, we were communicating the value that our customers say they get from being a client of Forrester rather than just giving away free research content. And so um, so, so I, I knew I was onto something. It was really hard to do the work that we were doing because there was no technology platform out there to help you scale it. And as I'm doing this and I'm starting to realize that this whole customer marketing profession is starting to emerge, uh, I realized, you know what, this is my next idea. I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go create an end-to-end -end platform to automate and scale the types of initiatives that I was doing at Forrester. And since there was no category for it, I found myself, you know, again, at the dawn of wanting to create a new category. But this one's a little different, though, in that the there are components of customer marketing that already have categories like uh, customer advocacy is a piece of customer marketing. Customer references is a piece of it. Customer engagement is a piece of it. Voice of the customer is a piece of it. So all these things already have their little, little categories, but when you bring it all together, it's kind of like ERP bringing together procurement and inventory and manufacturing planning and, and things like that. So, um, but, but still it's, it's, the, it was a no-brainer to me to say, to, to base what I was creating around the functional role that we were serving. And I believe in the jobs, Clayton Christensen and the, the jobs be, to be done theory. And so everything we did, we said, we're, we're gonna uh, just really target that functional role, the customer marketer and give them everything they need to do their job. And so that, that's how it came to be. It's not quite yet a category, uh, in, in anybody's eyes other than mine, but uh, I'm hoping over the next couple of years it becomes one. Very cool. Look at, let's take a, a small break. We, we, you both gave long answers, so we, we must drink. Right oh, we must drink? Okay. Uh, yes, cheers. Uh, we can get shorter now that we've told our backstories. <laughs> hey, every founder has to give at least one pitch. I think it's, it's natural. Uh, I think it's very, very interesting. Both of you, uh, both of you talked about the particular need that was very, very different. I bet that with some of the other guests that I had here, they would claim that you and also we, most entrepreneurs, software entrepreneurs, we don't actually create a category. We write an existing category. I remember we, we, I talked to, a, a, I think it was Massey. Uh, no, it was not Massey, it was the, the other founder of uh, Adespresso. 
shit, I forgot his name. Uh, he was mentioning how we never create categories. There are trends that are happening in the market and we kind of write them. Uh, and I hear a little bit about that from you, Jeff, when you talk about that customer marketer that is just becoming uh, more and more of a role and you know, it might not be fully defined, although I bet someone will, you know, might argue that it already is there. Um, but you're trying to serve that person similarly to how maybe Gainsight was trying to serve the, the customer success. Uh, and again, there is like a, a discussion of whether customer success was happening because SaaS and, you know, recurring revenue, we have to keep renewing it. Therefore, you need customer success. Or did Anthony Canada and, and Nick Meta kind of created to an extent because they had this piece of software and processes and program. Uh, do you, any of you have a strong opinion about category creation or category writing? What, what, what comes first? Hmm. Well, yeah, I'll start there because I've talked to Nick about this many times as well. And, and I know he's got a keen interest in customer marketing too, but, but I, I feel like, again, um, you know, I, I do notice that there's not a category, clean category for myself to fit into. But again, I did not set out to be a category creator. And, and so, so the way I look at it is, you know, forget whether there's a category or not, there's a job to be done. And there's a functional role that needs that job to be done. And so the approach that I've taken in doing it is to say, let's build the community. And, and so in some play ways, I am following Nick's playbook with Gainsight because he had a clearly defined functional role of customer success. And he gave it structure and meaning and, and a platform to scale it and automate it. And so I'm, do, I'm doing the same thing, kind of following in their footsteps, but also with what they've done with Pulse, I'm doing with Customer X. I mean, we've created a community called Customer X and um, Vinay, I had a great time hanging out with Allison last week or two weeks ago at our conference. Uh, she's, she's super. Um, and, and so we've, we've created a whole community of about 2000 people that are the practitioners, practitioners of this role that didn't have a place to convene or any type of uh, organizing principle or anybody bringing them together. So there was a vacuum in the market and, and, and we created that community. And that's what made me realize this, you know, that these are our peeps, this is who we serve. This is really the, um, uh, so, so I look at it more from that perspective of the, the community of people that we serve and, and ultimately wh whether it becomes a category or not, that's not really as important to me as, as it is knowing that there's a very clearly defined buying center that that buying center is emerging. I mean, like four years ago when I was introducing people to my software, they're like, hmm, who, who would run that? <laughs> and, and now it's basically any company with over 50 employees, I pretty much has a customer marketer on staff and companies over 500 employees probably have four or five of them. And so it, it, the, the function is here, just like the customer success function is here. And, and so I do see a lot of parallels with what I'm doing and with what Nick did with Gainsight, but we're probably five years behind in the evolution of the, of the profession. I'm not uh, sure I, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I um, spent a lot of time consciously thinking about quote unquote category design. I'm, I'm very much a first principles entrepreneur. I come back to, you know, there's a problem to be solved. And we started with the buy side first, right? I, I wanted to provide the most trusted peer-based review uh, or insight platform for buyers. Not even reviews. I knew that reviews were going to be a vehicle to exchange information, but not the only. We've now started to do things like add pricing data, 
video demos. You know, I'd like to eventually become a one-stop shop for bio-research along their journey. But also being pragmatic, um, I had to sort of think about the most effective ways to kind of monetize the platform as well and made a decision early on that monetization was gonna come from brands, not from buyers. Um, and then as I sort of backed into that, you know, there are multiple ways that you can monetize. And what was important to me was to do so in a way that was authentic and wasn't gonna become pay for play. So I think, you know, as I've made strategy decisions about how my business evolves, it always comes down to first principles in terms of my true north is serving the buyer, but then how do I create an authentic yet scalable and interesting revenue model that kind of ties to it? One of the things I struggle with today, honestly, is what label do we want to attach ourselves to? Because the term customer review platform could mean many things to different people. At one end of the spectrum, there are lead arbitrage sites that are really just software directories that don't really focus on creating a great buying experience or research offering, but we're put into the same bucket of them as them. Yet at the same token, um, calling ourselves something dramatically different is expensive to go and kind of create brand around a completely different you know, term. And uh, you then maybe lose the interest that, that that core term has in it, even if you're perhaps not happy with the definition. So where, where I think about sort of category labeling and strategy today is more about how do I change the narrative around something people understand? Love it. Very, very interesting. You kind of have a similar approach uh, talking about those first principles. Let's change gears for a second. Um, Vinay, this, this is your, uh, your second or third company? Um, second. Second. Um, can you share something, some, some principle, talking about I mean, the first principle, some principle that you know to be true that is not very known? In fact, maybe sometimes the opposite. If you read on TechCrunch or, or you go to the, the, the disaster kind of conferences, you, you may hear a different story, maybe a different cliche, but you actually know it to be the opposite or, or some kind of fundamental truth that you've seen uh, recurring in your, in your journey as a founder. Capital cannot always speed up growth. There are natural <laughs> market factors. Um, and not every business model should just always take sort of the high burn, high spend approach to scale. Um, and obviously, you know, in Silicon Valley, that's sort of perhaps um, the wrong thing to say. But, um, you know, I think fundamentally some markets take time to mature. Um, I think in both my companies, we're a little bit early. Certainly for my first company, we were early in pioneering the online fundraising category. It's now very much an established category, but we were the pioneers. And honestly, one of the lessons I learned was you, you have to be patient in terms of waiting for the market to evolve. Now you can do some things like Jeff does to educate the market and to get them there faster and to leverage influences to teach others. But even those things, you know, laws of osmosis, it takes time. You know, there's a natural course and run of events to actually have markets mature. And capital can only accelerate to a certain degree. If you pour too much capital on too early, it can be wasted. So be patient. Sometimes in, in some cases you're saying to be patient and not to just increase the burn, uh, just maybe wait a little bit because the market needs to also mature. Um, that's great advice. And then, how long did you, did you wait, if I may ask, uh, in the first or second company? How, 
how long did you wait patiently or impatiently, it doesn't matter, for the market to turn around and realize that they need what you what you built? Well, uh, I'm, uh, you know, being completely transparent in my first company, we, we I wasn't patient enough and I, I uh, ended up trying to scale too fast. And, and there are other factors as well around, you know, I started that company in 1999 and there was the dot-com meltdown and then later the financial crisis which we had to weather but um, putting those exogenous factors aside I scaled too fast and actually had to pare back down my team from like 70 people to 45 then we started growing again now that was on the heels of the dot-com bust but I think it was also because we had scaled too fast mm -hmm. and we're ahead of the skis as it were and um, I've learned that lesson so second time around we've been just a lot more methodical in you know, layering our business and making sure we see strong evidence that we're ready to kind of scale, add salespeople, spend more money before, before taking that step. And I think it was just sort of the naivety of a 28-year-old entrepreneur first time around versus an older guy now today, you know? So um, that, was, that was my lesson. can I ask you? I wanted to ask you, Vinay, uh, so with Trust Radius, I mean, what, what were the signals that told you it was time to raise capital there? Because I haven't raised any capital and I'm not really in any hurry because I don't really need it, but I'm also yeah. wondering, and, and because my market is so immature and so emerging that, that I don't know that I could spend it effectively right now. So I'm wondering like what, like what was the signal that told you it was the right time? So we bootstrapped for a year, but um, my business is more capital intensive than yours, Jeff, right? Because Probably. we have the consumer yep. market. So I knew yep. from the onset I'd have to raise money at some point, but that first round of capital, I raised $5 million, you know, lasted me, um, I think it was three years before I raised another round. And I've raised 10X less than my nearest competitor, still have a very low burn rate today, plenty of capital in the bank. So, um, I think there's there's a spectrum from bootstrap, which you're doing, if you have you know, the right market opportunity and the right capital intensity of the product you're trying to build, there's heavy funding approach when you've got truly a massive market that's hyper-competitive and the time is now and, it's, and you need to kind of really put the gas on to scale. But I think a lot of businesses are somewhere in that spectrum in the middle. In my case, I knew I had to stand up my community um, you know, I spent four years building a platform without even attempting to monetize it, basically mm. convincing total strangers to write reviews, figuring out how to do that at scale and with quality and without fraud, and then figuring out how to scale it and drive audience. And once I had that, then I had something that was worth monetizing. And, um, you know, I personally didn't have the capital to, to run those three, four years and, and, and have a team, a small team, uh, without raising some level of outside capital. So that... I think mm -hmm. that's the difference in our point. But in terms of when it feel, felt like time to raise more or spend more, it's really been looking at um, markers of, um, um, you know, what are your unit economics say, looking at like CAC ratios, looking at our ability to kind of scale pipeline and see if the investments we would make would have a sensible return associated with them. Also looking at what we were trying to do from a product roadmap perspective and say, Yes, we could slow roll that, but are we comfortable slow rolling it or do we need to get there faster? And those are the things that have really led to my thinking around, you know, what is the right pace of capital investment to make? But I don't think there's any one right size fits all answer. I think it's very dependent on your context and your business and also your personal desires as an entrepreneur. There's, there's something wonderful about being a, 
uh, a 100% owner or a near 100% owner of your business. Um, mm -hmm. or in my case, you know, still controlling a decent proportion and not sucking the dilution I did first time around. Mm, good point. Great question, Jeff. Um, do, do you want to share with us, Jeff, maybe something that you've learned either in your last, you know, couple of years uh, with, with Slap, uh, Slap 5 or even, uh, you know, a time with Gartner, which I don't think can say a lot. Yep. Well, sure. And, and so I think one of the things, maybe it's not a lesson learned or something that's counterintuitive as much as it is, you, you, you guys are all familiar with the debate about like, do you listen to your customers and let your customers guide you in everything you do, right? And Steve Jobs was famous for saying, no, if I listened to my customers, I would have built this, right? And we, we, I have to show them what they want. And, and, and what I've discovered over the last couple of years is that there's a little bit of truth in both. So when I first had this vision of what this product could be, I did a roadshow for about a year before writing the first line of code, talking to CMOs and marketing leaders about the challenge of mobilizing customers to be your best advocates to, you know, to do the, your marketing and selling for you. And the, there was just, I mean, the market was so early that the people were just pushing back with, oh, we could never get our customers to do things like that or whatever. I mean, there, there were just all kinds of yabats. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, but I knew that this was going to emerge and I knew that the trust gap that exists in the market between buyers and sellers and Vinay and I sort of at the end of the day we're both filling a trust gap right we, we, we both uh, that's what we one of the biggest things we have in common with our businesses so we um, uh, but if, if, if I had just sort of listened to that early feedback and built what these people were asking for I wouldn't have built what I have today and so what I've learned is that you sort of have to be out in front of your target audience and have that vision for how you can help them do their job better remember the it's the jobs to be done theory and deliver something to them that's game-changing to how they do their work and the impact that they can have on their organizations, but then listen like hell as they tell you about their experiences using it and, and where the challenges are and where the, uh, um, I don't know, the, 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 yeah, where, where it gets frustrating to do certain things or, or where they wish they could do this better. So, so I'm trying to continuously strike that balance between leading my audience towards uh, you know, the promised land where they need to go, but then you know, listening to them and, and having, because I have to practice what we preach, we're all about customer voice. So we, we listen intently and help them kind of shape how that then gets molded into the actual execution and deliverable of what we sell. And, and there's, there's a whole, I mean, like there's a whole nother area, like I've, I've been doing a lot of research lately around NFTs and so how, the role that they could be playing in the uh, filling the trust gap that exists in the market as it relates to customer voice. And uh, I know this is an area where if I went to my customers today, they wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, um, and, and even when I talked to some people within my company, they were like, what, 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 what? And, but, but there's, this, this is just some of these areas where you have to kind of be out in front and anticipate what types of trends that are happening in the market are going to hit your target audience and how, how you can be there to help lead them and, and, and provide a path for them to not be smacked in the face when some of these disruptive things come along, but pull them along so that they're embracing and, and riding the wave with you. So, so balancing the, the product vision, the kind of crazy ideas and innovations with present 
customer feedback into what works, what doesn't work. Yeah, and you have to find that right balance because because mm -hmm. again the 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 if you the my the my product has been it's it's a thousand times better because of the customer feedback. Absolutely. But nobody ever came to me saying, Jeff, you should build a you know a voice engine that does this <laughs> right. Right. right so uh, yeah and and you know my, my biggest competitor today is still spreadsheets i mean people do still do this stuff in excel just just reacting though to that if you are going to play the role of market visionary which i think we're both trying to do you have to be prepared to teach mm -hmm. and that teaching certainly is in your marketing processes where you know in our case, again, we're trying to reframe how people think about what a review platform is and what their expectations should be. But the teaching doesn't stop there. It really is most important with your customers because even if people buy in to your value proposition, you've got to keep reminding them why they bought and reinforcing sort of the value pillars for them on a consistent basis. Also in the, in the, in the MarTech world, people turn over so rapidly that you're always kind of educating someone new and if you're doing it effectively, not only do you build champions, but you build people who then carry you to, to other companies as well. So whenever you're in a category building mode, you've got to be a teacher too. And you've got to build teams that are capable of being guides. You know, I talk to my customer success team and, and say, look, it's your job to guide and to educate. The company may have bought us for one reason. Let's say they bought us because they want to be influential in their category on Trust Radius. That's wonderful. But are you talking to them about how they can be using content from reviews in their own channels to improve SEO and conversion or to enable sales? Are you talking to them about how you can use data in a platform like metadata to do more effective marketing or to feed your BDRs? And if the answer is no, then it's incumbent on you to make sure the customer understands that full potential. And it's not just about driving expansions, it's about driving full adoption of your platform and full outcomes because at the end in the day you know people aren't going to stick if they um, don't have the outcomes and they're not educated as to what those outcomes are if they're measuring you in the wrong way it's a real problem and, and Vinay, that's such a great point, point. Yeah. yeah and and i have an example that brings that to life Vinay, that that you i'm sure have heard about from allison so Vinay was nice enough to send allison his vp of marketing to my conference for my customer x community two weeks ago uh, and she was on a panel with two of his her counterparts from two of the other peer review sites and the whole reason why i wanted to do that session was because we needed to educate this customer marketing community which they're on the vendor side of the trust radius marketplace and my hypothesis, which is more than a hypothesis, my observation, I should say, is that these people that do that run these programs where they're trying to mobilize their customers to write the peer reviews, they, they have such a myopic view. They're not fully appreciating the power of what these peer review websites could be to turn them into a marketing channel for their company. They're just saying, I need 30 more five-star reviews this quarter and I'll be the hero. And I wanted to debunk that thinking, which is exactly why I said, I need to go to the horse's mouth, pull people that from the companies that these people are all trying to get people to write reviews on and have them talk about why you should be expanding your thinking beyond just looking at it as a five-star review is the end of the day <laughs> and pat yourself on the back for achieving that. And, and I think it was effective because the feedback we got at the conference, Vinay, you'll be glad to hear, was that that was one of the most uh, eye-opening and uh, sessions, as well as you know, challenging conventional thinking uh, about that these people had. 
which is what we all need to do because you know that we need to elevate their game in order to elevate their game we have to get them outside their comfort zone and think about things in new ways yeah we both mentioned nick matter um i had a chance to kind of catch up with him recently and um you told me that they sort of have a six pillar approach in terms of how game site is measured inside of a customer and they're religious about making sure that those um measurements are occurring in all of the QBRs that they did. And, and, and it's it's great to not, it's great if you're kind of lit up in one area, but you're not successful until the customer is sort of fully adopting and fully seeing the outcome of all of those value pillars. So I think it was just a good reminder that, again, our job as category builders isn't just to sell, it's to get people to be um, fluent in, in what they're trying to accomplish and make sure those outcomes are achieved. That's when success is realized. So much, uh, so many golden nuggets there. I think it's very, so interesting. Um, both of you talked a lot about education um, and educating the, the market and removing kind of uh, old thoughts or old paradigms and, you know, being, being okay to be controversial and kind of questioning old beliefs. Uh, these are very interesting motives um, to work on. How do you... You have companies in different stages, right? Vinay, your company is at, you're already at uh, you know don't, don't you don't have to reveal ARR numbers, but I would say you're you're a fairly a growth stage or even after, right? I, I'd call us growth stage, yes. Okay. Um, you know, and, product market fit is there, and and uh, we're now just trying to figure out how to scale. Scale, okay. And and Jeff, I think you probably stopped five a little bit earlier, right? A little bit earlier, yeah. Um, still, still rounding out the product market fit uh, in terms of the the original vision, but um, but you know, fifty enterprise clients all getting Beautiful. a tremendous amount of value and renewing every year and and running their whole function on our platform. Cool. You're getting close to a sales pitch. I'm going to make you drink really soon. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I think it's it's nice because you you guys both represent kind of uh, at least some 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 sort of different points on the spectrum for company growth. But you both invest quite heavily in in education, um, mm-hmm. and I think that speaks also to your previous point, Vinay, about maybe being patient. You know, maybe the maybe the market is just they need another year. Uh, for that osmosis that you were talking about to 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 boil up and and for that change to happen, um, I know that personally for metadata, we, I've seen that I've moved from like what do you mean what what experimentation platform why is this important to like I you know like kind of uh, that becoming the most interesting part of the conversation. Uh, I wouldn't be able to predict it. Uh, we'd love to know. Uh, not from a category creation perspective necessarily, but more about the, the education and community building. What mm. is the single most effective tactic that mm. you have had the experience to execute that got you kind of in the 2080 rule with actually a lot of value for not too, too big of a, of a program? Um, I'm really lucky to have a phenomenal in-house research team so the research team are the team in my company who take care of um, uh, the taxonomy on my site, the reviews, you know, the quality control over the reviews. They speak to vendors like yourselves about categorization and emerging categories to make sure we're nimble and we're covering the market. But they also are very good researchers, market researchers. So one of the things we have them do is conduct market surveys um, and our biggest survey is an annual report called the B2B Disconnect. 
where we survey a thousand buyers and we survey a few hundred vendors to understand what they think uh, statistically and qualitatively. And it's extremely revealing. One of the key nuggets was vendors obsess about scores. Buyers don't care that much about scores. They care about content because they want to know if the product right for their use case. If a score is horrible, they're not going to pick it. Um, if the score is amazing, they might look at it, but they're not going to buy a product on scores. Vendors absolutely obsess about scores. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I think well, our industry sort of led them that way. And the analyst industry may have led them that way in terms of the, you know, the pursuits of the top right in the two by two. Those um, vanity metrics. <laughs> so well, I'm a big believer again in first principle data collection. And I believe, you know, one of the things that we've done is do these market studies with this in-house research team, super nimble, and they, they're able to publish this amazing first-party research that we can then break down and use in education and content marketing is woven into every sales deck. And it ties very discreetly to our product strategy and to our vision. So that's the number one tactic I've used at this company. My last company, it was really, um, it was a different world where fiscal events happened a lot more, but we used to do a lot of regional um, educational forums, putting customers on the stage. And one of the best tactics I did was put customers I wanted to work with on the stage too, along with customers I worked with. And then you create this illusion that everybody's kind of working with you. And you also engender relationships with those, with those people as well. That's not a strategy I've really emulated with this new company at. At, at any scale yet, but it worked really well for my last company. Very cool. Anything from you, Jeff? Any tactics yeah. you'd like to share? Well, what, what you just said, Vinay, at the end there is probably that was the tactic that I was going to highlight that, that's been most effective for us. So, so I, again, I didn't even set out to build a community. I was kind of led there because of the vacuum that exists in the market. And I'm going to quote one of the speakers at my conference two weeks ago who talked about, um, you know, categories don't create communities, the community creates the category. And so, because she was doing a session about mobilizing customer voice as you're building a category. And so the, um, in, in, so the what I did is I, I stumbled on this community strategy by kind of by accident because we realized early on that we were selling to a user who was a one person team like most companies have one customer marketer in their team. They're lonely, they're overworked, they get no appreciation and they need a lot of therapy. <laughs> and so I, our, our weekly check-in calls with my VP of customer experience who runs our customer success program, she would say, I feel like I'm their therapist. And so just on a whim, we said, okay, we're gonna create this thing called group therapy for customer marketers. And we're kind of worried about the stigma of group therapy, but it turned out to be phenomenally successful because what we did is we would get, um, like you said, Vinay, we would get one customer and two people that are thought leaders in our space, but also ideal target customers on a panel talking about a super hairy, difficult challenge or issue. They don't have to have it nailed. They just need to talk about it. And we would get swarms of people that would want to come listen to it. And then this just morphed into having a whole alumni of people that had participated in this that started to want to get together. And then they said, Jeff, you know, create a community out of this. And so I did. And, and so that's how I sort of backed into this idea of creating this customer X community in order to elevate 
the, with the mission of which is to elevate the profession by helping guide these people on what it means to connect their work to the strategic growth initiatives of their senior executives and then how to do it so that they can in turn elevate their careers. And so, uh, and, the, and the reason why it's been so successful is because in my target market, there's the 80-20 rule, right? There's probably, and it's probably 90-10. There's probably 10% of the practitioners in my market get it. They're mature and seasoned enough that they recognize that customer marketing can be a driving force in their organization. The other 90% are just trying to write case studies and manage reference requests and do the keep the lights on activities. And so what the community has done is it's allowed me to uh, create a fill a pond with people and let the people who within the pond who are ready and to take the next step and pursue that desire that they have to contribute more to their company, uh, they're going to then raise their hand at the right time and want to learn more. And so, so it's very much, a, you know, an inbound marketing approach. We spend zero other than building the community, we spend zero in marketing. And so, um, you know, it, it, it all comes from having built that community. And then when people get to the right point, they self-select and say, we're ready to take the next step. Show me how Slap5 can help. Amazing. Sounds like the, the, the new world of, uh, of, of B2B sales. I think I'm going to, uh, <laughs> once, once we get our customer marketing in place, I think I'm going to have them uh, speak to you and your team. It sounds like you've done a lot of good work. Uh, that's just kind of... Uh, personal interest that they have it sounds like it is a lot of education and, and helping the customers the customer mark uh, customer marketing um, I don't know community I guess help help each other that's pretty cool um, we are 13 minutes before the end I know that you probably noticed that I, I poured myself another glass I haven't seen you do the same so I think this is the right <laughs> I'm moment. still nursing my first one cheers gentlemen thank you uh, I'd love to hear something personal. Um, Vinay, maybe we start with you. I've heard here, I'll tell you Godard's story because you probably, uh, you probably know uh, Godard Abel. And so uh, Godard told me how he uh, ended up in prison uh, one time. That's interesting. I think that's the first episode, if I'm not mistaken. So you need to one-up this one. <laughs> I don't think I can quite one-up that, but I can tell you why I'm wired like I'm wired and I'll get pretty personal. So um, I'm of Indian descent. And I grew up in the UK and um, the UK, unfortunately, was not that welcome, welcoming of immigrants. And I experienced a lot of racism here, um, both in high school, verbal abuse, even physical abuse um, from other kids. And then even when I, was, I went to Cambridge and uh, when I was graduating, uh, I couldn't even get um, interviews with the firms that I wanted to work for in London, all the big management consulting firms. I had a first class degree in engineering. I couldn't get a first round interview. Um, and so <laughs> I have a massive chip on my shoulder <laughs> as a result of that. And, um, you know, I learned, I had some, you know, experiences with entrepreneurship young. My father um, worked at Ford Motor Company, felt a glass ceiling in his job progression. And so to make more money, he created like a sideline business going to London every week. I used to go with him. Um, and uh, that taught us, that taught me sort of the discipline of just the grind and the hustle of kind of being an entrepreneur. When I was 11, I actually had a business. Uh, I was into heavy metal. I used to go buy records from bargain bins in stores and go and sell them for three times as much in my, in my at school. 11. Damn. At 11. 
And so I had this sort of entrepreneurial gene, but I think when I look back at it, some of it is generational and uh, maybe culture that kind of was very entrepreneurial, like, you know, uh, that I learned from my dad and my grandfather. But some of it was just feeling like I had to prove myself that the society I'd grown up in here in England didn't really want me. <laughs> and therefore I felt I had to prove myself. So I left England pretty, pretty quickly, you know, after, after, after Cambridge, I went to the US and then to Asia and London, US and so forth. But, but um, um, you know, I really do like building a business in the US, but I think if you to really ask me something personal, I think it was that childhood experience of not feeling uh, wanted and feeling like I had to prove myself has really made me who I am. Oh man, I love what you just told. I love that story. I, I think it's a lot more common than, uh, than people have an idea uh, that, that chip on the shoulder. Thank you for sharing both the, the adversity part of it as well as the fucking awesome result that, you know, the drive that you have that came at least partially because of that. I think that's, that's really nice. That's really cool to see. Uh, I personally uh, love it. Thank you for sharing. And uh, Jeff, do you, do you have something you'd like to share? Uh, something personal about yourself that, that other people don't? Sure. I mean, and I can tell you a story that I, I don't think I've put into words before. So, uh, but, but Vinay made me think about it because Vinay, I can't believe how many parallels we have in our, in our careers. And this is another one. So, so again, I, I grew up in a family business, but it happened to be small business, restaurant business with a dad. And, and so that instilled the entrepreneurial spirit. But as you know, there's a high rate of, um, let's just say mental illness in, in that industry caused a little bit by a little too much of this. So, um, and, and so, you know, it was also a very much in a, an abusive situation that I grew up in, which, which framed me to be, to operate and think in a certain way, but also to make me think, I want to change the world for the better to help you know, very disadvantaged, underprivileged people or people who were in situations that I've been in to, uh, to get out of those situations. And it, it got me to such a point where I actually, on the side, when I was at Forrester, when I was dabbling to try to think about what my next business should be, I actually started a social impact company with a partner where we were, the, the vision was to create a marketplace to match people who want to do good with people or organizations or families or whatever who, who need help and, and, and learned an awful lot about doing that, but also realized that it's hard to monetize something like that, that that's purely social good. Uh, if it's not something like selling socks where a dollar of every pair of socks goes to a charity or something like that. But nevertheless, it, it still has shaped my entire viewpoint on business to the point where I said, even whatever business I start next, it's going to be something that helps a community of people that desperately need help, in, which is what I found in this customer marketing community and family of practice. Um, where it's an incredibly kind-hearted, genuine, authentic group of people, which these people are. They've, they're full of empathy. They're just the salt of the earth people uh, that, that take this profession. And uh, I want to do it in such a way that, that I can give back, but while still feeding my family. And, and so, so I've been able to do that. And as such, you know, the, you know, the, the platform that I've developed is, is highly beneficial to nonprofit organizations or cause organizations. And so whenever 
somebody or whenever I talk to somebody who works with a cause organization, I say, you know, please use my platform for free. Showcase the voice of your donors, showcase the voice of the people that you're serving, and then showcase the voice of the, you know, the staff or the people that are delivering that, that aid or assistance to, to this constituency. So, so that's definitely shaped who I am as, as a business person and, and really the, the desire to give back and uh, you know, help, help those people that can't help themselves. Awesome, Jeff. I didn't know you did that. I spent 13 years in the nonprofit sector, so we should we should talk about that sometime. Ah, uh, yes, yes. You know, I'm always uh, thank you for sharing that. I'm always so uh, impressed by the level of uh, sharing and just being vulnerable and uh, all those things that are easy to be cynical about, especially as mm -hmm. KPIs-driven entrepreneurs. But look, this simple question it tells so much about the inner drive, about some of the true mission behind you know, the things that you're both working on. Um, anyway, I think, I think it's very impressive. Thank you both for sharing. I think that's very, very cool. And you know, it's more than often I'm, I'm, I find myself again being surprised by the, 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 the level of depth of the answers I get sometimes for these questions. Um, and Gil, if I could just add one thing, I, I, I want to make a plug for a, a person who has helped me so much in this journey that you just described, which is a famous person named Brene Brown. And are you guys familiar with Brene Brown? Um, she, 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 writes, she writes an awful lot. Um, she's a public speaker, author, uh, podcaster, and, and she talks an awful lot about vulnerability. And she talks about how it takes strength to be vulnerable. And she has totally transformed how I, my, my whole self-image, how I think about myself and how I put myself out there in situations. And so Brene Brown, and uh, you know, look her up or any of your listeners, uh, look her up. She's, she's amazing. If you just watch, watch one of her TED Talks, you'll be blown away. Super cool. I have to check it out. I think vulnerability is something that uh, is on the path of many entrepreneurs uh, in mm -hmm. the path of self-growth. So absolutely good, good advice. Um, anything else that you'd like to share? Maybe kind of a last, uh, last insight, last advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with before, before we finish. Imagine uh, early stage, series C to series B, uh, CEOs and CMOs who are thinking about category creation and then end up learning a bunch of other stuff on the way? Well, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's specific to when you're trying to build categories, but since it's an entrepreneurship team, right, the team you choose to embark upon this journey with is so important. And vulnerability isn't just a trait of a good CEO entrepreneur. You need a team who's willing to be vulnerable. Because if they're not vulnerable, they're not going to, you're not going to really get candor on a team and you're not going to be able to tackle the difficult problems and you're not going to be able to feel comfortable enough challenging each other. So I'm, I'm not familiar with Brene Brown, but we've used um, uh, the Table Group, which is a consulting firm that's associated with Patrick Lencioni, uh, the guy who wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I think that his book series is essential reading for every entrepreneur, every CEO. And I think, um, again, vulnerability is a very important concept, but it has to extend to your whole leadership team. And I think, you know, 
for me, a big lesson that I've learned more this time around than I did first time around is not only is it important to have the right people on the journey with you, they're going to change. People are going to have their phases that you outgrow, et cetera. And it's okay to have those conversations where they move on and find other opportunities and you bring someone else in for that net scale. But um, you've got to work on yourselves as a team. team. Good teamwork doesn't just happen. It has to be worked on. So that's sort of one of my big epiphanies as a, as a second-time CEO and entrepreneur. Thank you. So vulnerability, not only for the CEO, but for the leadership team and constantly work on that relationship, that, those dynamics, so that you maximize the, just everyone's, everyone's throughput. Thank you. And Jeff? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with Vinay. I mean, that, that is so crucial. So I'll, I'll come at it from a different angle then, is that uh, my biggest advice as an entrepreneur, as a two-time software entrepreneur and a couple of other ventures along the way, some that just totally flopped, uh, is that you, you can't think that you have to have everything figured out and documented and know exactly where this is going to go over the next five years before you take that first step. And so there are so many people I know, I mean, every cocktail party you go to, right? There's somebody that has this business idea. Wouldn't it be great to do this? And you just know that this person will never pursue it, right? They're just not wired to be an entrepreneur. But there are a certain number of people, I think it has to be in your DNA, like it was for me with my family uh, business history. But you know, if you are wired to be an, an entrepreneur, you just have to take that first step and, and, and start exploring it, start testing the concept, start start you know build a prototype or or an mvp or, or or something and i give this advice all the time when i'm speaking at business schools or entrepreneurship forums and things like that because people say how did you get the courage to leave your job and do this well to be honest and i'm being vulnerable here both software companies i started i started them after getting laid off so and, it, and i didn't want to go get another job and they were both in really bad economic times when i knew i wasn't going to get the same type of salary that i had just left and so i had to go out there and be scrappy and and find it and luckily i had a vision and an idea at both occurrences and so uh, so i was prepared to go do it but but you know, you know, just you, you got to take that first step, and, and and not just be scared of leaving the comfort of that corporate job. Because I can tell you, the the joy of being an entrepreneur, even though you've got the headaches and the pressure, the joy and the satisfaction of creating a baby that people think is adorable is just out of this world. Amen. To I, that. Love, <laughs> I have another thing in common with you. I started my first company after getting fired, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oh my God, amazing parallels, Benet. We have to have more drinks together because uh, this is uh, amazing what's come out. Gentlemen, I really enjoyed uh, meeting both of you and talking to you. Thank you so much for, for joining this podcast and being uh, very candid and, and open and insightful. Cheers. All right. Thank you. For, <laughs> thank you, Gil, for having us. Thank you very great, much. Great everyone. chatting with you, Benet. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.